Question 24. Why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. By his substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. Question 25. Does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? Yes, because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sin, God graciously imputes Christ's righteousness to us as if it were our own and will remember our sins no more. Colossians 1, 21 through 22 says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The word of God for the people of God. It's good to have you here today. We've been going through the New City Catechism and just building ourselves up on our most holy faith. That is, we have been looking at the foundations of the Christian faith. Our scripture today was Colossians 1, 21 through 22. And it was, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, <clears throat> he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So we're going to be talking about our Redeemer today, and we're going to see that he had to die. It was required that our Redeemer must face death and undergo death so that we <clears throat> might experience life. And so some of the combination of title, our Redeemer died so we would live. I kind of shortened it to that. And then as I got into it, <clears throat> I titled it, The Ugliness of Christ's Death Gives Us the Beauty of His Life. Just looking at the cross and what Jesus did for us is hard to look at sometimes, the, what he suffered for us. And was it really necessary that he had to die, and that he had to die in that kind of way, that kind of ugliness enduring the cross, to give us the life that we were meant to have from God? Did he really need to undergo that? And our catechism question says, yes. And that it was so effective in Christ's death that it literally brings you uh, all the righteousness and restoration uh, back to God. So the first part is, was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? And the answer was, since death is the punishment for sin. So you have to first take that first portion of the answer that death is the punishment for sin. 
Was it really required that? Does the Bible really say that death is the punishment for sin? And we can see by our text today from Colossians 1 that it was. It says, in his body of flesh, by his death. It was saying that by his death, that that death was required. In the book of Romans, chapter 5, it begins to tell us about this redemption that is in Christ. In, in Romans 5.12, it reads, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that man was Adam, sin came into the world through Adam, it says, and death through sin. So death came through sin. Sin entered the world, and the penalty for that sin was death. We see this as Paul uh, sums up in that portion of Scripture in Romans six twenty-three, with a famous verse that we use a lot that sums up this. It says, Romans six twenty-three, the wages of sin is death. The due payment for sin is death. So sin, since death is the punishment for sin, so do we agree with that? Since death is the punishment for sin, we see that. We see it in the beginning of the Bible, in the opening pages of Genesis. We see in Genesis 2.16, the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. I mean, this command is, is, is blessing. It's you may eat from any of the tree, all the varieties. And I think that's interesting that when we're dieting or fasting, you know, the very thing that we say, you know, I can eat all of this. Let's say I'm, I can eat all the lettuces, the spinaches, the fruits, the walnuts, the pecans, the, and you can go on and on about all you can eat. But all you can think about is that one thing that you can't eat, you know. And so all of a sudden it becomes the thing that seems so delicious. And it was like this in this opening command. It says uh, that you can eat from all the trees. Uh, you may surely eat from all the trees, but of the tree... Of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. See, breaking the commandment of God brings death. Surely it is the sentence and the punishment for sin is death. I want us to think about this death and break it down a little bit, that it's not just the end of your life. Don't you think like death it's the end of my life when I breathe my last breath here on this earth. And what that means when you bring, breathe your last breath here on this earth is that your body is separated from all that you, you are outside of your body, which is your spirit, soul, mind, thought. All of that is separated. That is that your body goes to the grave and your spirit, as a believer, is immediately present with the Lord. That's the intermediate state. That's not the end of all things because the Bible promises, just like Jesus was in the tomb three days and three nights. He was dead. He was separated. His body was laying in that tomb, dead. But he was active. We don't know all what he was doing, uh, but we believe he descended into hell took the keys of death and hell. Things were happening 
separate from his body. That's what death is. It's a separated state. And so when Adam and Eve sinned in that day, they surely died. Now we know they didn't breathe their last breath and die, but they died in that they were separated from God. And this is shown right after their sin in Genesis 3.8. It says that they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. So that separation was there from being able to walk and enjoy God's presence in the cool of the day, that this is what they would do. God would come down. They would walk with him. We see that that's what the joy was in living in the garden and in full fellowship with God, their creator, a oneness with them. But there was a death when they ate from that. It was immediate death. It was immediate separation from the presence of God. They now hid themselves from the presence of God. That is a separation from the life that is in our Creator. A separation from life itself. A separation from light itself. A separation from love itself. Everything. That was death. That was the death that we died in Adam. So I want us to look at death not just in that we will breathe our last one day, but it is the ravaging of sin and the decay of sin and the wages of sin that right now we are dead in our sins and trespasses outside of the grace of God we are dead we are separated from our sins and trespasses Colossians 1 in our text today it opens up and says that and you who once were alienated you see that alienated from the presence of God, alienated from the presence of God. And then it says, not just alienated from God, we're not just separated from God's presence, but now we have become hostile in mind. We're not just separated and alienated from God's presence, but we're actually hostile in mind towards God. The thoughts and the intentions of the heart are hostile to God, violent against God, violent against His ways. This is the kind of depth and depravity of sin. It says, and doing evil deeds. That's what it does, that alienation uh, from God and from His presence and being hostile in mind leads to that doing of evil deeds. In Romans 8, 7, you know, it says that for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It is. The, the mindset on your own self, your own ways, your own desires, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil that wants your own way, like the prophet Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned towards our own way. We're alienated from God and we're hostile in mind to God. We have turned to our own way. And Romans 8, 7 said that being in the flesh, we're hostile to God. Why? Because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The mind and the flesh uh, outside of God cannot submit. It is alienated and hostile. That sounds like a pretty dark, hopeless situation, doesn't it? That's the penalty of sin. It is alienated from God, hostile in mind toward God, 
And it is so hostile in mind toward God that even if it wanted to, you know, some people say, well, I want to. Even if you wanted to in your own willpower of your flesh, you could not, that mind could not submit to God's holy standard of his law. It cannot do it. It's just saying it is impossible. I want us to see that. I want us to see the darkness of our sin, that it was required for sin, that sin's penalty, sin's just a due wage, is death. Death, that separation is there. A separation, a separation from God that produces a mind not only alienated to God, but hostile to Him. The good news begins to creep in in our text. And in our catechism, answer to our question. Colossians 1, 21, 22 says, But he has now reconciled. Reconciliation is a beautiful word. It involves the payment for the, these wages that were due and owing, reconciling, like reconciling your bank account. And so he has to reconcile, and the only way to reconcile is by his death. Death must pay the penalty for our sins to bring us the life that God wants for us. But he has now reconciled. So the reconciliation isn't just in the sweet by and by when we breathe our last breath and we get to be with God. But reconciliation begins to happen the moment that you confess Jesus Christ as Lord. It begins to work in you that gift of reconciliation that you were once alienated from God and now you're beginning to being reconciled to God. You were once hostile in mind to God and now you are being reconciled in your mind and your thoughts and then all of your deeds likewise begin to change. If you haven't experienced that change, you haven't experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have in theory said, I believe in God and God gave us this gift, and nothing happened in your life that changed the course of your life from being alienated to the life of God and being reconciled with that God, having been rebellious in many ways and hostile in your mind to God and being restored to God, if you haven't experienced a change in your life in some way, I want to challenge you and say you haven't met your Redeemer. You haven't met Jesus Christ because there is a mighty transforming power when you come out of darkness into the glorious light of the gospel. Reconciliation means now. He has now reconciled you, Colossians says. Eternal life doesn't mean just something in the future. The word eternal doesn't mean just something out there. Eternal means now and forevermore. So there is a nowness to eternal life. There is an nowness to your deliverance in Christ. And it's hard to see sometimes, isn't it? Because we're still battling and struggling, and we long for that day when we don't have that battle anymore. But the now, that does not discount the now of the, of the power of the reconciliation in our Redeemer, Jesus. See, He bore something for us in His body. And when we, when we uh, 
take that in by faith, when we claim it for ourselves by faith, by our confession that Jesus is Lord, believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead, when we apply and we take that, that blood that he shed for us and it's applied to us, it changes and transforms us from this darkness to life. See, he bore that on the cross. I want to specifically look at just that deliverance from darkness. This continued kind of just looking at the ugliness of our sin so we can see the glory of the gospel. Teresa and I, when we uh, have been driving in the past and going up to Albuquerque and you go through Carrizozo and you're on that long stretch out there in the middle of nowhere to the giant big town of San Antonio, New Mexico, there's no lights out there. There's nothing for a long way. And it's one of the darkest uh, places and stretches if you're ever driving there in the night, especially when there's no moon out. It's one of those nights when there's no moon. It just gets pitch dark out there. And we will always take the time to pull over at one of the places where you can pull over safely. Sometimes not so safely. I think we've just pulled off the road, the shoulder. And we get out there and we'll just either walk around or lay on the hood of our car for a while and look at the brilliance of the stars. I mean, you can see the Milky Way like you can never see the Milky Way anywhere. And we have a pretty great place in Riodoso that's not too, uh, you know, diffused by city lights. But out there, it's just a whole nother thing. You see, light shines brightest in the midst of darkness. Seeing the darkness of our sin helps us to see the grandeur of Jesus' glorious light and everything that he brings us. So when we look at the atonement that this answer said, that by his atoning substitutionary sacrifice, we look at what he took on for us. And just one of the things, you can look at this for the rest of your life, but just one of the things that he took on for us in that separation from God was darkness. And I want to say gloomy darkness. I want to say the darkness of the pit of hell itself, a gloomy, thick darkness. It says in Mark fifteen thirty three that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness. This is Jesus on the cross. He's been crucified. He's been pierced. He's been lifted up. He's been suffering on the cross for hours now. And at this high noon time, in the brightness of day, in the brightness and intenseness of the sunning, the time you don't want to be out in that 109 degree temperature when the sun is shining its brightness from noon to three. That's when darkness fell. Darkness fell over the whole land. A piercing, thick, gloomy, supernatural darkness fell upon Jesus, upon the cross. And in the end of this gloomy hours, Mark records that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice at the end of this three hours of darkness. And he cried out, and the, the, the words of Mark just goes back to his native tongue in the writer here. You know, when people just go back and all of a sudden they start speaking their native language, you know. They're talking to you in English, but then they go, I can't really say it in English, so I'm just going to say it to you in Spanish. And they just rattle off those words because that's the only way you can really say it. The writer here 
is just all of a sudden Jesus cried out these words in that darkness at the end of it. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabbathani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the end of this darkness that he bore, it was hell's gloomiest darkness bearing for us the judgment of God, bearing for us that separation from God. This verse in 2 Peter chapter 2-4, it says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. Peter's describing that. Cast into hell uh, where there's chains like a weight. I'm talking about a felt darkness of weight that Jesus bore. Say, Bobby, why do you keep going on with this? You know, because if we don't feel in any kind of way what Jesus bore for us in our sin, we will in no way be able to receive the glory of his light that he brought us, what he reconciled us from. See, we have a modern kind of messages coming at us all the time that you're not that bad, that you're, you're not that sinful, that sin's not really that bad. We, you know, people want to just encourage each other, right? You're not that bad. You're good. You're okay. And that's the message of our modern day world. And it's been the message a lot of times throughout different cultures in the Bible, coming and going. You're okay. You're not that bad. You're all right. But the Bible continually tells us through the cross, when you look at the cross, that, yeah, you were that bad. Look at the cross. You were that in darkness. You were that alienated from God. I didn't feel that way. I didn't. Then you haven't felt the depths of your depravity and the depths of what sin did. You just haven't gone into it and let him reveal to you that darkness because the world, the word of God, does reveal the darkness that's within the heart of man and the mind of man. It does uh, challenge us with that and bring that weight of that gloomy darkness of hell. Hell is no joke. The darkness in separating from God is no joke now and for all eternity. Our Redeemer had to suffer that darkness to bring us into the light. See, when he cried out this verse, I want you to just go on a little journey with me. When people heard a verse... They knew their Bible. They actually knew their Bible. And they knew when Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbatatsuni, that he was crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it didn't just end there. They knew that psalm. They sang these songs. It would be like, oh, I remember that's one of those cool, melodramatic, kind of melancholy songs. Remember when you see that? That's what he cried out, and then they could remember the whole song. See, that's the catchphrase. That's the chorus. That's just the, the melody refrain, my God, my God. But they would see and hear and sing and meditate the whole song, and they knew what that whole song was. They knew the song, top ten chart forever higher than any Beatles song or anything you can ever imagine of your favorite song. This psalm was there. And they knew that it went on to say what he said. Why are you so far from saving me, 
from the words of my groaning. They knew the agony of, the, of this psalm. They knew Psalm 22.7 where it went on to say, they wag their heads at me. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue, rescue him for he delights in him. That's what he told us all along. And when you read in Mark 15 in the same portion of scripture of this darkness it says exactly that from psalm 22 7 it says they derided him wagging their heads at him mocking him and saying to one another he saved others can't he save himself oh yeah god delights in him well let me see him delighted him now they wagged and they mocked and they derided him and that's in our hearts that's our hostility towards god in his mind They're reflecting nothing more than it is in the common nature of man, not just to be alienated from God, but to be hostile in mind toward God. We can look at them and go, those bad Pharisees, oh, look how evil they are. But they're only revealing, they're only revealing regular human nature, regular human nature outside of God's saving grace. So don't discount it that way. Know this psalm. That it also says, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You know, when he cried out, I thirst, his his tongue stuck to his jaw. None of us have experienced that kind of thirst. You could walk through the desert and die of thirst and might experience some kind of thirst, but we haven't experienced that kind of thirst, but he experienced it. He experienced our lack of living water in that time upon the cross. He said, dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. that pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments. Remember this? This is Psalm 22. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Mark brings this out in Uh, Mark 15 again, verse 24, they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. This is the ugliness of the cross that Jesus bore. It's revealing the ugliness of our sin. You have to own this. And the world will tell you, you don't have to own this. That's not your sin. You haven't done that. You haven't really been that hostile. You haven't really been that violent. You're pretty good. See, this is the message of the Pharisees. It's exactly like us. It's, you're pretty good. You're trying. You're keeping it pretty good. You're not this bad. Surely it didn't require that death. But the Bible says it did. Was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Yes, Death was the punishment for your sin. That's how bad your sin was. It required death, and not only death, the death of the very Son of God crucified on a tree in a brutal, violent time where he was separated, literally, in darkness from the Father. He bore all of the sins of humanity. This was our sin. Was it necessary? Yes. Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God, to reconcile us back to God by his substitutionary. He died in your place as your substitute, the place where you deserve to die. He stood in as your substitute and died in your place. He atoned for, he paid for, your death. He alone redeems us from hell 
and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. Jesus gains for you something. He gives you something. He now gives you his righteousness. And you stand justified. Now this starts looking better and better as we see the darkness we were locked into. The legal claims against us of darkness. We now see this word justified. This legally cleared from every sin. He literally redeems you from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sins. But he gains for us righteousness. That is a right standing, right and justice. A right and just standing before God. This is profound. The word justified. That he declares you legally righteous before him. It's like a judge coming down and you're waiting like, what is it? What's it going to be? Innocent righteous, just, just as my son. The price that he paid is paid it all. Every one of your sins wiped out. The the slate made clean. He comes down legally and judges every sin of yours in Christ on the cross and you cannot pay it anymore. There's nothing you could do to add to that that sacrifice that Jesus made. Well, don't we do good works and don't we do things and don't we kind of... We do, and that earns you nothing more than what Jesus already accomplished for you at the cross. There's no earning in that. See, the salvation is grace alone. It's all in Christ. That righteousness he gives you is all in Christ. You only do all of those things out of love for what he did for you. doesn't earn you any more closeness to God, any more reconciliation to God, any more anything. If you're doing those things, now I feel a little bit better with God because I did all these things. Today I didn't do anything for God. Now I feel a little bad for God. You're living in a wrong world. You're living in a religious world. You're living in a pharisaical world. You're living in a Muslim world. You're living in a, a, a Jewish world where works earn you something with God. And, and, and religion has done the same thing. You have to do something to work your way. And that is disgraceful in the eyes of the Father who carried out and justified you all in Jesus on the cross. It's like trying to say you can add something to the cross and what Jesus did, that his sacrifice wasn't fully sufficient to redeem you by grace. And when you realize that he fully redeems you by grace... You come to the end of Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Oh, all of the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. There is a turning to the Lord and seeing what he has accomplished. And so when Jesus, when Jesus cried out in Mark 15, 37, he said he uttered a loud voice and cried his last breath. And it says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Yeah, you've been reconciled. That curtain, clear back to the garden. You remember the curtain that was put up in the garden? The two angels with the flaming sword saying, you can't get back in. That still existed. You can't get back in. You know, you can't get back in. You know, the temple how it was built and constructed. You can't get in. You can't get in. You can't get in. And that temple curtain was ripped into and says you can get in you're in come in you've been reconciled through the death of jesus on the cross come in to his presence and i think one of the the greatest you know examples of this coming in this beauty 
of this life that was purchased by our Redeemer is from this sinful woman who comes into Jesus' presence. It's a, it's a great display that's unique in Christianity above all religions, but uh, all faiths, all self-effort, uh, ways to try to reconcile themselves back to God and what truly transforms a person. It's the gospel. That's what we love to sing about. That's like what we love to, to um, worship. We like to uniquely make it Christian uniquely not just say, you know, my lover or my redeemer or ooh, ooh, or have good feelings, but doctrine that says the death and resurrection are the unique things about Christianity that have restored us back to God. Uniquely that mention Jesus, mention his name, make much of exalt him in our worship. Not that's vague, not that could be sung in a Muslim mosque about God. They'd translate that as Allah and some good things. Not that it could be sung in a, in a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue, about God. But uniquely, what is the gospel that makes Christianity Christian is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And if it doesn't make much of Jesus, is it uniquely Christian? Is it something that we should really gather about to celebrate? That's the heart of worship. That was the heart of this woman that came to Jesus, that boldly came in to a Pharisee's house named Simon, this Pharisee, and Jesus was invited to his house. He comes there in Luke 7, and this reveals the gospel, that the gospel is the fuel for the true love of God, that if you're grasping in part what I'm saying today, it will fuel you to love and serve God. Not out of trying to earn him something, but out of gratitude for what he's done for you on the cross. So we see that in this house of Simon, that this woman comes in. She's touching Jesus. She's crying on him. She's anointing him with oil. She's wiping his feet and hair with her hair. This is this whole scene. This perfume pervades the... Uh, the whole scene, and, and, and the Simon's is like, this is a lady that storms in my house. We all know she is. You know, she's a horrible person. She's, she's evil. She's a sinner. You know, is it Jesus? Is he, he can't be some kind of prophet to be letting this happen, to know how evil this woman is. He's just thinking that in his heart. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. So he doesn't think he is a sinner. Or at least he doesn't think he's as bad. This is the way the world thinks. I'm not Hitler. I'm not one of these guys. I'm not never killed. Maybe never even stolen. I don't know. Probably lied and gossiped, but that's okay. It's not as bad. Whatever, however we want to justify it, this is, this is Simon. But Jesus picks up on that, and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain man, a moneylender, had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, cannot pay, impossible to pay. The alienation from God has made it impossible to pay. They cannot pay. It is impossible for the mind of the flesh that's hostile to God to not be. They cannot pay. Now, he canceled the debt of both of them. Canceled the debt. It's wiped out. You owe me nothing. 
Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Simon's pretty smart, isn't he? He's picking up on it. And he said to him, Jesus says back to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, turns toward the woman, but he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, he's looking at this woman, talking to Simon, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. This is the profound mystery of the mathematics of the gospel. It makes no mathematical, logical sense. It's not earning. It's not working way up steps. And if you're on step three, I'm on step eight. There's no looking down on one or another, forgiven more or less. It's the understanding in your mind, what have you been forgiven of? Do you have a realization of the darkness that Jesus bore, the depravity of your darkness and sin? Do you have an understanding of that? Because modern popular opinion says the way to deal with your guilt is by saying you're not that bad. You're not even guilty at all. That's just put on you by society. They're just trying to tell you that's wrong. Many ways we try to justify and we feel like minimize our guilt out of guilt. But that never really works against even the conscience of the unsaved. They're always finding ways to try to work their way out of that guilt. Other religions even say you're not that bad. But Christianity says that your sin is worse than you could imagine. And you need to see it and admit to it truly to be healed from it. That's the only way out of it. That's what this woman saw. She saw she was a sinner. The blindness of Simon is he didn't see. He was told he was good. He was told he was better than. But I want to look at this and see. Here's the mathematics of the gospel. To the degree that you see that you're a sinner, and there's degrees of that, that we get convicted of our sin, that we see it. To the degree that you see that, only then will you see Christ's love clearly. What did he ask? How deep, did he really love me that deeply? You see, if you only owe 50, he only loved you 50. But if you owe 500, he loved you 500. And that's a whole different thing. And Jesus wants us all to come to the revelation we owed 500. And the cross is that beautiful. The darkness is that dark. And his light is that bright. And it's 500 watt, not 50 watt. <laughs> it's powerful. This is what transformed your life like that sinner lady. It transformed her life to love much. If you're having trouble loving much, 
It's for these reasons I'm speaking to you today. I just don't like people anymore. I just don't even want to be around them. I just don't like anybody. I just don't even love. I'm even having a hard time loving my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm just feeling my love grow cold. This is the answer. The answer is knowing the darkness and your own darkness and how much he loved you. And let his love fill your bank so you can just let him deposit into you so that you can pour out that love. You've got to have his loving deposit before you can love much. And this lady could love much. That's what he said of her. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. She was pouring out everything on Jesus. I'll pour out my tears on you. I'll wipe your feet with my hair. I'll pour out all my ointment that I've saved, that I have. I'll, I'll pour it all out on you. I'll give you my all. And she was able to love much. Our Redeemer had to die, and his death forgives us of all of our sin from its power and penalty and fully reconciles us into God and his glorious presence. Let's worship him. Let's come and behold this wondrous mystery of our Redeemer that died as our substitutionary atoning sacrifice in our place that he might bring us to God and reconcile us to God. Amen? This is what we're going to see. Come and behold the wondrous mystery. As the worship team comes, we're going to take communion together to remember the Lord's death. Remember the darkness that he bore for us upon the tree, the cross. If you put your trust in this Redeemer, Jesus Christ, you're welcome to join us at this table of the gospel, the table of the Lord's feast in Christ. On the bottom is the bread representing the body of Christ. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. Let us partake together. Thank you, Jesus, our Redeemer, for giving your body all the way to death on the cross to redeem us and give us the life that we were created to have. We give you praise, Jesus. We lift up your name on high. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In like manner, he took the cup said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood given for you for the remission of sins. Take and drink of it and do this in remembrance of me. Let us take together. We remember your death, Lord Jesus. These thousands of years later, we remember it with great joy because we see the ugliness of our sin and that you bore it on the cross to bring us the glorious light of our salvation. And we rejoice in you, Jesus. We rejoice in you. Let us behold the wondrous mystery of your great, glorious salvation. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Please receive this closing blessing. You are reconciled saints, delivered from the power and penalty of darkness and brought into his marvelous light. Go and be light in the world. Be the light of Christ shining brightly. In Jesus' name, amen.